Well, good morning. I am not Patty Connolly. It's a privilege uh, to get to be with you this morning, unexpected though it was. Uh, I, Patty and Ed and I were texting yesterday about this time, uh, which is when I found out that I was preaching all three services and not just uh, Crossroads this morning. So, um, as Alicia said, if you're following along in your bulletin, it has now become a seek and find. Uh, you, you get to determine where we are and what we've already done because we're not doing it in the order that's in front of you. Teaches us to anticipate, not participate, or participate, not anticipate. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful uh, that we are reminded this day of your sovereignty. God, that nothing is a surprise to you. That we have the opportunity to come together as your people to worship you the one who is worthy of all worship that we can bestow upon you. I pray that as we open your word this morning, it would be for us, as it says of itself, alive and active. God, that you would use it to penetrate us to the deepest parts of who we are, that we would not leave this place unchanged. I pray that as I open my mouth to speak, it is not my words that are heard, but yours. We pray all of these things. In the name of Jesus, for our good, for your glory, for the benefit of this world around us. Amen. Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest." This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. This is for us this morning, the the third in a a short three-part series called Postures of Peace. And we have considered over uh, these Sundays in November ahead of Advent what it means for us to be, to find, to have, to dwell in the peace that is possible uh, that we read about in Scripture, the peace that comes from knowing God, the peace that comes from belonging to God, the peace that is possible in life with Jesus. And the idea is, one, that it helps us to navigate this world in which we live, but it also creates in us this thing that allows us to be a non-anxious presence for the world. And if ever the world needs a people who are not anxious in the face of all that there is to be afraid of, all that there is that causes us anxiety, all that there is that causes us to question and to doubt, 
We have the opportunity, if we adopt this posture of peace, to be for the world a presence that is non-anxious. And it doesn't mean it's because we ignore the things that are going on. I could be non-anxious because I choose to live with my head in the sand and not pay attention to the things that are going on in the world. Or I could name the hurt and name the pain and name the fear and the frustration that we see, that I see around me in the world and choose to bring peace into that. And that is who we're called to be as the people of God. Now, the first couple of Sundays uh, that we spent in this series, Psalm 46, uh, carries in it that verse, Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. And inherent in that stillness is an invitation to peace. Uh, for any of us who feel like we live hurried lives trying to move from one thing to the next, the invitation to be still is an invitation to rest. And often in rest, we find peace. So that that makes sense to us. In Psalm uh, 37, uh, which we looked at last Sunday, we have this this command, this this urging, Psalm 37, 4, delight yourselves in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And I shared with our our, uh, Crossroads, uh, in our Crossroads worship gathering last week and with the, the 830 service this morning that for me in high school, uh, that was very formulaic. There was a girl in high school that I really wanted to be my girlfriend. And I found this verse and thought, if I just would delight myself in the Lord, he will give me the desire of my heart. And the desire of my 17-year-old heart was that this girl would want to go out with me. Thankfully, God is not like a genie and God is not a vending machine. uh, And God chose to withhold uh, that from me. And God has since answered that prayer in giving me uh, my wife over, over 20 years. My desires at the time were short-sighted. But the invitation, the call to delight ourselves in the Lord, to focus our attention and our energy on the goodness of who God is, we can see how that would bring us peace. And this, this psalm this morning really kind of picks up with that, but it does so in a bit of a different way. This is a psalm for us about worship. And it would be easy to say, what in the world does, does worship have to do with peace? And one of the things that we find in this psalm is that the direction of our worship directly correlates to the depth of our peace. The direction of our worship directly correlates to the depth of our peace. Well, what does that mean? And, and what do you do if you're not a worshiper? We are, we are blessed with a unbelievably talented singers and musicians. Thank you all for sharing your gift with us. And it's easy for us who sit here to say, well, those are the worshipers they're the ones who are leading us in worship. Therefore, I don't really have to worship. And, and if it were up to me to get up here and lead us in worship, then the, the, you know, make a joyful noise to the Lord, that, that would ring true. So, so what do you do if you say, well, I, you know, worship's not really my thing? I mean, some of us love the act of worship, love the act of singing, love what melody does in our hearts. But there are others who are like, I'm, I'm going to just keep it you know, right here as subdued as possible. And so what do we do with this psalm that tells us, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. What if there were shouting in the 11 o'clock service at Boone UMC? Yeah, there it is. We can't say with any sort of integrity that we are not a worshiper that I am not a worshiper because all of us are worshiping something. How many people attended a football game yesterday? 
shouts of joy, urging those men on the field on, giving your all to encourage them, perhaps maybe even worshiping what was happening in that moment. You see, we were created as worshipers. When God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, God gave everything in that space for their enjoyment so that their, their worship, their enjoyment of that thing would always result into the giver, result in praise and thanksgiving to the giver of those gifts. But we see what happens when, when our focus goes from the giver of the gift to the gift itself, or, or in that case, to the thing that was withheld, to the thing that, that um, Adam and Eve became convinced that God was withholding from them. And that has been our plight ever since. We who were created to operate and to exist and to live in this posture of worship of God, the one who is the giver and sustainer of life, the one who created all that we see, the one who holds the mountains in his hands and, and created the boundaries of the seas, the one who, who shepherds us, the one who cares for us. We were created to live in this posture of worship before the one who is worthy of our worship, and, and we get sidetracked, and the problem comes because we, we, we remove our worship from the one who is worthy of it and assign worship, assign glory, assign honor to lesser things in this world. Why do we do that? Because our hope is that if I pour my energy into elevating this thing, if I pour my energy into elevating this ideal, into elevating this institution, into elevating this person, I mean, for me, I was convinced in high school, high school Vern was convinced that if I could just, if this girl would just be my girlfriend, then that, that I would... It, it would, I would find joy in that. And, and likely, maybe I would have. But at the time, God saw fit to withhold that from me because he knew then that the object of my worship would cease to be him and my attention and my focus would become that individual. And so we elevate these things and these individuals, these ideals and these institutions in our lives and place upon them an expectation that they were never meant to bear up under. And, and when we begin to be honest with ourselves and, and begin to examine maybe the ways that we've done that in our lives and the ways that we've become frustrated by things, the ways that we have felt let down by someone that we believed in, the ways that we, that we hoped that, that if, I, if I can just support this idea or this institution or this thing and then it doesn't come through for us the way that we hoped it would, then we, we, we find ourselves dejected or, or frustrated or we find that, um, that, that we, we just are, are disappointed and then we are left with asking you know, all sorts of questions. And it's because that individual, that institution, that ideal was never meant to be the object of our worship. And so we can't say that worship is not really our thing because all of us are worshiping someone or something at any given moment in our life. And in this psalm, what we find and the charge that we hear is a call, an invitation to worship the God of creation, to worship the God who shepherds us. And there's some very specific instruction in the way uh, that this psalm is written. Now, there's some question as to whether or not David wrote this psalm. We know that many of the psalms that, that we can attribute to David in Scripture say at the beginning of them, a psalm of David. This one does not carry that heading. 
Uh, and, and so there's some question as to whether or not this was written during the Babylonian exile. Regardless, uh, this is a psalm that would have been used by the people of God as a call to worship, as an invitation to worship. And as we'll see in a moment in Hebrews uh, chapter three, chapters 3 and 4, this is a psalm that is attributed to David. The author of Hebrews notes that um, in, in, in his uh, use of, of this psalm for the people that he's writing to, uh, to encourage. But the, the instruction that we have here, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. So we see that singing is part of the ways that we worship God. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. I'd like to charge all of you with something. Let's surprise Ed when he shows back up next Sunday that there's some shouting happening in the 11 o'clock service at Boone UMC. He'll come to me and say, Vern, what did you, what, what did you do to those folks in there? Yes. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. So we see that, that worship is meant to involve, there's a physical nature to it. It's not just coming and receiving, but there's a call to participate in the worship with God. And we see there it's communal. Come let us sing. Come let us offer shouts of praise. Come let us um, give thanks to God. Ought we to worship on our own and privately? Absolutely. But not at the neglect of coming together to worship communally before the Lord. And then in verse 3 and 4, we begin to see why. Why should I? Why is God worthy of my worship? Because the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. And we could say, well, th th we don't really live in the time in which this was written. And so are there really other, you know, lesser gods? Are there other gods in the world? And again, we could go back to that question of what is it that we are assigning glory to? What is it that we are worshiping? What is it that we are elevating and lifting up and placing an expectation on? Because we hope that that thing will somehow fulfill us, or we hope that that thing will somehow give us life and meaning and purpose. I would venture to say that that is, if we are doing so, an idol or a god, lowercase g, in our lives. But against all of those lesser gods, there is one God who is the only one worthy of our worship, worthy of the praise that we would offer him, because he alone is the one who is above all gods, the king above all gods. He alone is the one who created all that we see. Gosh, we are blessed to be people who live in the high country, aren't we? To be able to step out and see on full display God's handiwork, to watch the sun rise or set over the mountains, to experience the seasons, to, to see the array of color in the fall, to watch the snowfall and the way that it blankets everything, the God of creation on display all around us. God gives us those things, yes, for us to enjoy, but so that our enjoyment doesn't stop there. Rather, it stops and terminates at the one who created all of that for our enjoyment. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Again, the physical nature of worship. And, and the, the understanding of worship in, in uh, the Hebrew text is that it was to lay prostrate before the Lord to lay down before the Lord. Well, well that would be, I mean, that, that's next level. Like you might come in here shouting next week, maybe, right? But if you were to then get up out of your seat and just lay in the aisles, 
And you think, ah, this is, that is not what we do at Boone United Methodist Church in the 11 o'clock service. The, the, the idea there and the reason that we're called to lay prostrate before the Lord, it's a humbling of ourselves before the Lord. And, and I, I would encourage you, if, if you're able, this week, if you have your, your quiet time or if you open um, you know, Scripture and spend some time in God's Word and, and even go to the Lord in prayer, maybe as a part of that, practice laying down and, and see what begins to happen physically, what begins to happen mentally, the, the way that that just changes your, your orientation toward the Lord, to humble yourself before God in a way that is physical. And, and if laying down and getting up off of the floor would be difficult for you, then, then the bowing of your head and, and maybe bowing lower than you have before. But to see what, what, what happens in us when we, when we choose that physical posture of, of surrender and submission before the Lord. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leadeth me beside still waters. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with me. The God who shepherds us, the God who protects us and comforts us is the God who is worthy of our worship. So we could stop there, but the psalm doesn't stop there. The psalm takes what feels like a really odd turn at this point. Why does it do that? Why this turn in these, this word of warning? There's, there's the invitation and the call to worship and then a word of warning. This would, be, it would have been a model for worship. This would have been a model that, that was established at the time of Moses when the people were brought out of Egypt, out of captivity, and God tells Moses, the reason that I'm sending you to Pharaoh and the thing that I want you to tell Pharaoh is to let my people go so that they can come and hold a festival to me, so that they can come and worship me. And then as they are standing before the mountain where Moses ascends and receives the law, God tells Moses, hey, tell the people, now is a time of celebration, but, and now is a time of worship, but here are the things that you can't do. Here are the boundaries. Don't touch the mountain, because if you do, you're going to die because the presence of the Lord will be dwelling there. So there's, there's worship, there's praise, there's thanksgiving, but then there's instruction and warning. So we see this instruction and these, these words that are hearkening back to the wilderness people to those who got tired of their wilderness wandering, who forgot all of the things that God had done in leading them out of captivity and into freedom, and who began to grumble because they were hungry and they were tired and they were thirsty. It sounds a lot like a trip with children, doesn't it? We've done a lot of driving over the past uh, few days as a family, and I'll, I'll, I'll do more driving tomorrow. I have the privilege of going down and presiding at my uncle's um, funeral who passed away uh, last weekend. And, and I, I have really come to appreciate the Waze uh, app. Not, not so much Google Maps and definitely not Apple Maps because I think they just throw that, threw that in there. It's really ineffective, and Apple, I mean, they, they just lead you anywhere, and it's not anywhere close to your destination. 
But the thing that's nice about the Waze app is that because a lot of other people are using it, you really can just set your destination, plot your your course, and then just drive and listen to that lovely voice tell you when there's a police officer ahead or, or there's a car stopped on the side of the road or there's traffic ahead or a chipmunk is crossing the road in front of you. And, and you just find yourself kind of on cruise control, not really thinking about, you know, how to get to where you're going. You're just kind of going with the flow. And, and I wonder how many of us do the same in our relationship with God. We just kind of put it on cruise and, and hope for the best, not engaging our emotion, not engaging ourselves physically, not engaging, engaging our intellect in the worship of God. For the people of God who were in the wilderness, they forgot They just found themselves on cruise following the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And so God became frustrated with them and said, they're not going to enter my rest, this rest that I promised them, this rest that is possible if they will just follow me, if they will just remember. Friends, worship and worship specifically of the true God, the God of creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our Heavenly Father, Jesus the Son, made possible by the Holy Spirit, keeps us from hitting cruise because it keeps us humble before the Lord, humble before the giver of all gifts, humble before the one who, who alone has the right to direct our steps and to lead us back when we've gone off course. So the warning here is that we don't allow our hearts to become hard that there is a rest that is promised to us. And that rest is not because we've put it on cruise, but that rest is because we've said yes to the gift that God promises. For the people of God, it was uh, who were called out of Egypt, that rest was the promised land. It was the land that, that God said to Abraham, this, not only will you be the father of a nation, but I'm gonna give them this land as a gift. It was, it was the, the promise that was then sustained by Moses. It was the promise that then was, was made possible by Joshua's leadership and his entrance of the people into the promised land. And yet there were people who did not get to enter that rest. And so what of us? What do we say? Well, well I don't, I don't, this, is, this feels a lot like the promised land sometimes, the high country, right? The, like the thumbprint of God is here in this place. So what, what are we to do with this warning? What we understand from Hebrews chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, but if you're a note taker, um, Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 6. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is writing to a people who are becoming discouraged. These are people who, who grew up in the Hebrew and the Jewish faith, and, and now they have said yes to life with Christ, and it's becoming incredibly difficult for them. They're being shunned. They're being fired from jobs. They're, being, they're outcasts in their families. And, and so they find themselves in many ways like the, the people of Israel saying, what? I could just go back to what I knew because at least that was comfortable. And, and at least they fed me. So the author of Hebrews is writing as an encouragement. He says, therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, And since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, and this is from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. 
as long as it is called today. That would be like saying every day that ends with Y, we have an opportunity to choose whom or what we worship. That's every day. And we say, well, I don't know what's going to come tomorrow. Well, if tomorrow comes, then tomorrow becomes today. The, the rest that is being written of here is the gospel rest. It is the ceasing from our striving to earn or to win God's favor and God's love over us. The gospel rest made possible by Jesus who entered this world. We'll spend the next four Sundays remembering and celebrating that advent, that arrival of Christ, the, the, the way that God made good on a promise that he would not leave us to our own devices, but would come and bring a rescue. That rescue and that invitation stands now for us to cease our striving and trying to earn God's favor and to receive the gift that is possible in Jesus Christ. The gospel that allows us to rest. It doesn't mean that we become inactive. It just means that we understand that our activity is not the thing that is going to win God's favor or draw his attention. His attention is drawn because he created you and because he loves you. He alone is worthy of our worship. And the degree to which we assign the honor and the glory that is due him is the degree to which we begin to understand that he holds it all that he has seen the beginning from the end, that he alone is the one who gets to order our days and in doing so has given us this gift of Christ. And we understand that there is peace to be had in that. And it is a peace that is rooted deeply in something that exists outside of ourselves. It is not something that we created or fabricated or stirred up for ourselves. It is appropriate that this is a psalm that we end this series on and prepare for Advent. This is for us Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday in the liturgical year before we flip the calendar and begin anew, remembering who God is and all that God has done for us. And we will have an opportunity really to practice the things that we've talked about over these three weeks as we approach and enter into the season of Advent, to be still before the child who would be crowned king. to be still and to know that God is at work in the arrival of this child. To allow the desires of our hearts to rest on the child who would be crowned king and to worship the child who would be crowned king because he alone is worthy. Amen.